Our Cancer Journey. Hey, Our Cancer Journey podcast friends. It's Bruce, and on today's show, Professor Levi Waldron returns for part two of his interview on biostatistics and informatics in healthcare research. Check out this clip from the show. Cancer is a very unpredictable disease, and you can have two patients who enter the clinic with what looks like exactly the same disease. They're the same stage, same grade, same location, and you give them the same treatment and one of their tumors responds immediately and they're cured and the other one's tumor just continues on growing. It's long been a mystery as to why that happens. And we assume that in many cases, it has to do with the biology of the tumor and that if we can understand enough about what's happening in the cells of that tumor, we can understand who is going to respond and who is not to treatment and ultimately to develop better treatments for those who are not responding to the current treatment. The Our Cancer Journey podcast is a place for those impacted by cancer, their caregivers, and their loved ones. Together, we explore ways that we can optimize our lives through the experiences of diagnosis and treatments and beyond into the future of survivorship. And now your host, Bruce Watkins. Greetings, everyone. It is Bruce Watkins, your host for the Our Cancer Journey podcast. This is the place where together we'll explore ways to help you feel better, live happier, expand your self-empowerment, and enhance your life experience. Welcome back to this episode, which is going to be part two of our interview with Professor Levi Waldron, the expert in biostatistics and informatics that's supercomputing that's applied to healthcare research. We've got a lot of great comments on that first show because this stuff is stuff we never think about, but boy, is there a lot happening behind the scenes in the medical research community and all research. And it's data scientists like Dr. Levi here that's doing the heavy lifting to pull together all of the research information from those marvelous clinicians and visionary people that are exploring new things. So I'm very thankful that we have somebody like Dr. Levi on the show. Okay, so we're going to start this episode just briefly finding out a little bit more about Dr. Levi's personal cancer history. We won't spend a whole lot of time on it, but we're going to use that experience in his cancer. For later on in the program, we're going to talk about how he approached getting treated. Pretty unique when you're such a deep expert in data and medical outcomes. It's interesting and I think you're going to find it enlightening too. Probably reinforcing that we all need to go through the same things and be very thoughtful about where we get information. We're also going to talk to Dr. Levi about the steps of research. We touched on that in kind of an introductory way in part one of our interview, but here we're going to talk about who does what and who is a researcher and who isn't. We'll have a much better understanding of the role of data scientists in this and a much greater appreciation that data could be out there for us, ready to use to help us. Now, I do want to share one other thing about my interview with Dr. Levi. You'll learn more about it later, but just really quickly, my interview with Dr. Levi was long. It was extensive. We talked about all kinds of interesting things. Professor Levi sits on a steering committee for a conference on the human biome. He wrote personal blog entries into some specialist blogs to help people understand his own personal cancer journey so he learned how to share his story in a unique way. And he is also an advocate for people sharing their personal medical information 
so professionals like Dr. Levi and his colleagues can take that data and help refine even more the research they're doing so they can give better directions to clinical staff and help to speed us to finding better treatments and possibly cures. Now, I was fascinated in all this stuff, and I think you'd find it interesting too. So I made a decision. I've decided not to take all of that information and jam it into this episode so it would become some one huge long episode. I'm going to make some individual podcasts on those individual topics because I think they're really interesting. And I'm going to take Dr. Levi's audio that I got from our interview, and I'm going to bring in some additional subject matter experts in those categories. I hope you'll like that. Those episodes will be coming up in the near future. Right now, though, we're going to enjoy episode two with Dr. Levi. And before you go, remember, if you like our show, please follow us on your podcast app so you can get notifications of every episode. Go to our website at www.ourourcancerjourney.com. Click on the contact link and give us your email so we can send you an email every once in a while with updates. Or go to our social media pages. we got one on Facebook. And follow us there so you can see which episodes are dropping and when. And we can stay in touch. Okay? Let's bring on Dr. Levi. We're going to roll the tape right now. I hope you enjoy the show. I'll be back soon. So if people haven't figured it out by now, Dr. Levi, you are a survivor of what kind of cancer? I'm a survivor of HPV-positive oropharyngeal cancer at the base of my tongue with spread to the lymph nodes. Well, doctor, it's good to be another member of the club. <laughs> that was my cancer, too. So um, mine was a little bit... Right, right. <laughs> mine had progressed to a couple other areas, but we both were in there, and I think I was a little bit ahead of you. I was in 2017. When were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed in 2019. No, so it's not that long ago. So you're, so you're, no. you're doing very well. And I think your point about being a deep researcher, an accomplished statistician, looking at all these things, you're the guy who comes up with stuff and puts it on the internet and then we go out and look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what you're doing to us, Dr. Lee? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I, have, I have published lots of papers that you might have seen some of them, but the ones I published on head and neck cancer are all from a little while ago, so you would have to look back to, to the last head and neck cancer paper that I published. Well, you're doing great work, and the more I understand this field and how really beneficial it is to all of us, I'm excited to talk more about the depth of what you do in a way that our people can really extrapolate some meaning from the data set. <laughs> okay? So... Let's talk specifically about research, because research is a lot more complex than I think a lot of people understand. But you're really seeing the end product of a lot of people's work, and you understand the process and the methodology. So why don't you kind of walk us through, in a layman's way, please, Professor, but walk us through something that can really help us all understand what this research looks like, how the data comes out, methodology, and how your role factors into that. But, just for a moment, I have a question. I'd like to clarify something. Are you a statistician, or are you a researcher? All right, well, first, please hold on for a second, because, because I am a researcher. Oh, well, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so it's not just the hands-on clinical people that are researchers. 
If that's the case, so is everybody that touches research data a researcher? Well, that was an answer you, you, can, you can use there, but it, it's a fair question about, you know, what constitutes research. Um, so I would say that performing novel analyses of data is a part of the research enterprise and developing methods for analyzing. Wait, 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 doctor. I hope it's okay that I ask this question, okay? Okay. Well, I usually wait to anger the guest until later in the program, <laughs> but we have a lot to talk about, so I just want to get right no, that, to it. I thought I thought actually that was a great uh, that, that was a great comment and something I was happy to seek out. Well, thank you, Professor, for making me feel better about my ignorance. Okay, so tell me more about this combo role of yours. I'm both a, a biostatistician and a researcher because I investigate data, I develop methods to analyze those data and develop hypotheses from analysis of those data. Well, there you go, doctor. I just learned something. Thank you. <laughs> okay. You're welcome. <laughs> now, how exactly would you describe this analysis? So if I could give an example of the kinds of things we try to do with these data, cancer is a very unpredictable disease. and you can have two patients who enter the clinic with what looks like exactly the same disease. They're the same stage, same grade, same location, same age. They're clinically very similar. And you give them the same treatment and one of their tumors responds immediately and they're cured. And the other one's tumor just continues on growing as if it had never been treated. So it's long been a mystery in the field as to why that happens. And we assume that in many cases, it has to do with the biology of the tumor. And that if we can understand enough about what's happening in the cells of that tumor, we can understand, first of all, who is going to respond and who is not to treatment and ultimately to try to develop better treatments for those who are not responding to the current treatment. Well, thanks for clarifying it. And now it's clear now in your explanation, you are really on the front end of this, giving these researchers this information and helping to guide them. So that's great. So these people that are on the front line doing clinical research, because you're not a clinical researcher, right? So these people are on the front lines doing clinical research and putting up this data. Let's talk specifically about how that gets done. Well, maybe I can, I can just explain a little bit more about how this research is going on. That would be fabulous, doctor. Please do. Sure. So I think it's important to understand that genomics research, the area I'm in, it's an interdisciplinary and a collaborative field. So the clinicians who are seeing patients, treating patients, and collecting specimens are working with laboratory people who then take those specimens to the lab and apply new technologies to them, the sequencing, the, all these different assays to them, who then share them with bioinformaticians who process them through the latest pipelines that they have learned about, and statisticians who analyze the data produced through that. So there are all these different people involved in the process of taking a specimen and clinical data from a patient, putting that into a data set, and then analyzing it and trying to learn something from it. So, so we're all involved in that process and in the process, trying to learn how to analyze these data. Well, wow, this is really, really complex. This is multi-stages, right? 
There is a lot going behind the scenes. You know, I'm saying this because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there like me. Maybe it's from us watching science programs where we all think it's some white lab coat technician and they yell Eureka, you know, and all of a sudden there's a there's a discovery and they found it. But it's not nearly that simple, is it? No. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Doc, I think we have a good idea that this is a highly collaborative process. So let's change gears here for a moment. With all of this data coming out, and many people like you and other professionals handling it, what could be done from a systems and distribution perspective to help us get more out of this data and maybe help people in society like me and our listening audience use it, process it, and apply it better? You know, I want to say that, first of all, I'm really supportive of patients and the public having access to published data and reading it themselves and being able to see what is going on in a transparent way as they're published. And I'm a strong supporter of open access publishing for that reason. But I also want to say that for any given paper, there's a lot of context behind it. And it is the risk to overinterpret what you see in one paper without knowing what the context is, without being able to look at the methods and say whether they used a good set of methods, and also just to know whether this particular result is plausible in the context of all the other things that have been published on that. So it's difficult. And you know, also for myself, if it's not something that is really directly in my own wheelhouse, my own field of research, and by that, I don't just mean cancer genomics, I mean, certain areas of methodology in cancer genomics, then I don't have that context either. And it would take me probably at least full days or weeks to get caught up on any other area, which is not practical in most cases. And I, I have to rely on trusted sources for a lot of things. Well, that's a little bit of a heavy admission because here you are with your depth of experience and even you're saying, if you don't really know what this research is or the context of it, you may be picking out a little headline or a little factoid, but it's not in context with everything and other research. So the validity or how much it may relate to you is either questionable or it's not in any way related to you. So this is really a complex area. So like you were saying, you have to rely on other people to help interpret this. Somebody that's really gotten into it and looked for the fallacies or the flaws or comparisons to other studies that have come up with counter results to what you're saying. Absolutely. I guess I don't want to get into anything political or social here, you know, because that's not what my podcast is about. Mm -hmm. But just from your opinion of being a pretty accomplished expert in the field of both statistics and bioinformatics, we see a lot of statements about research and findings, and they're coming through this, what, what do people call it, the mainstream media, or it's just released without any analysis. Or, and people like me and the listeners in our podcast and millions of other people out there hear this and we are taking it in. I mean, what is your thoughts and what can we do to better guard ourselves from grabbing a hold of some errant piece of information that could be not very beneficial to us? Yeah. 
Well, let me start by saying that when I was diagnosed with oropharyngeal cancer, despite that being a cancer that I had studied about 10 years in the past, my expertise wasn't clinical and my research in the area was about 10 years old. So I relied heavily on my doctors as experts who were up to date on current practices and research. And I think that my research background enabled me to ask them good questions and to understand their answers, but I relied on them to give me those answers because I couldn't digest an entire field in the the weeks that you have after being diagnosed and before starting treatment. So here you were, an expert in data and research, and even you wound up putting your trust and faith into people that were more of an expert in that particular category. Yeah. And I mean, in that situation, I had a team of doctors whose job it was to, you know, their entire job was to keep up with current research practices and to pay attention to my case and to make qualified recommendations to me. And so I took advantage of it. Well, yeah, there you go. I mean, that seems like a pretty good plan all the way around for life. Yeah. In a lot of other situations, we don't have a team of experts whose job it is to give us advice. And so, yeah, we have to pick up what we learn from other sources. Well, I think that's great, doctor, that you had access to colleagues and experts like that. Do you have any advice for other folks, like some of the folks in our listening audience that may not have access to those kind of experts? Any thoughts about that? What can I say about advice on that? I would say in general advice, I myself try to limit my sources of information to what I consider to be more reliable sources. Like when I'm looking for clinical information on a disease, I would limit myself to the American Cancer Society, the Mayo Clinic, a couple, a few sort of sites that I knew and trusted. They tend to be not complete, but at least they're highly curated and vetted as to what they put on there. So they, they don't tend to take risks about saying things that are not fairly broadly accepted already. So you tend to get more of a consensus view by limiting to those sources. Well, Dr. Levi, that is pretty solid advice. There's some people out there that think that some of the larger institutional, you know, established voices in the cancer medical community may be a little bit too staid or some of the curation tends to make it homogenous. All the stuff sounds the same. But boy, have I seen some pretty crazy stuff out there on the internet. You can't tell if it's completely way out in left field. So that's some pretty solid advice. But, you know, it's really interesting. I like what you said about I've got a team of experts, you know, because with regards to your doctor team, that's probably the most professionally trained team that I've ever worked with on a project other than some stuff in my old business days. We don't have that with nutrition oftentimes. I mean, we're putting food in our body. We don't have it with physiology, rehabilitation doctors, with exercise. We're kind of winging it on all of these aspects of our life. Now with integrative medicine and the new modalities with cancer treatment, there's a lot of opportunities for us out there. So that's really insightful. Mm -hmm. So I want to change this just for a moment to talk about you personally. You're a statistician. You clearly know what you're doing. I mean, you've been at the Ontario Institute of Cancer, 
You studied at the Harvard School of Health? Yeah, Harvard School of Public Health. Yeah. You studied at the Harvard School of Public Health. You've, you've done a lot. How was it when you were told you had cancer? I mean, was it any different for you than it was for us? Or are we all kind of in this together? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Probably, I, I feel like my reaction to it was a pretty visceral reaction that, you know, it's hard to say how much is informed by my background, but I doubt it was that different. You know, it was one of being, um, I kind of went back and forth between thinking I'm going to be fine and I'm going to die soon and being afraid. I would sort of switch between those states unpredictably, you know, and I, I wanted to have answers where there were none and I wanted to know what was going to happen. And I suspect that those are pretty common responses. I've, just a second. I've got, a, I've got a cat making noise. My dog is going to erupt any minute here. <laughs> The Our Cancer Journey podcast will be right back in just a few moments. Professor Waldron's cat will be done causing havoc in just a few moments. Please stay tuned. Okay, has the entity in charge of your life, your cat, calmed down now? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Professor, now, you've just told us that much of your experience was likely like our experience. Was there anything that was different for you that you might want to share with us? Okay. I suspect that where my experience was different than most was that I had a a big network of well-educated people in related areas who could help me. So I had epidemiologist colleagues who offered to do literature reviews for me on topics relevant to my treatment. I had doctor colleagues and friends advising me on like how to have a good conversation with my doctor and the kind and helping me to develop the questions that I should ask my doctors. I went into the meetings with my doctors with like a list of questions that had been run by and curated through my network. So, you know, that helped a lot. So I was very fortunate to have friends and family and colleagues who could help me through decision making in this process. Levi, didn't you tell me that when you were told you had cancer, you needed to make decisions really quickly when you were diagnosed and that really impacted you? Would you mind telling us about that? Sure. So I went from being diagnosed. I I remember getting a call while I was sitting on a bus in the city and told that I definitely had cancer. From that period, I spent about two weeks until making a treatment decision. And in that period, I saw a bunch of doctors and they told me I had a few possible options. I could be treated with radiation and chemotherapy or with radiation and surgery and only possibly chemotherapy, uh, or I could go on a clinical trial that would reduce the amount of, of everything. 
and that all of these were pretty good options, but they all had different possible side effects and they might have different probabilities of survival. And I had to make a decision on that within a few weeks. So it's, well, <laughs> I made a decision, I think, within more like within a week. So it's, it's a lot to be hit with and have to make a decision on in such a short period of time. You know, Professor, it is so true. So many of us have to make rapid decisions. And the mental process we need to go through, the information gathering, it's hard from a cognitive standpoint, but it's also hard from an emotional standpoint. Now, you being an information guy, that must have put a whole different layer on it. So, can you talk about this from a real personal level, about what it was like to be you and the impact of those rapid decisions and your need for information? On a personal side, I was receiving information about survival, about side effects, and trying to weigh these things and make a decision. It's, it's really incomplete information that I had because it's not possible to know all about the complex long-term side effects that can occur and the frequency that they occur. As an example, I remember my radiation oncologist telling me that with a standard radiation treatment, there would be about a 1% chance of something called osteoradionecrosis, where your bone dies, and it's a pretty serious condition. And that's your jawbone, right, Dr. Levi? That's your jawbone, yeah, and you can end up having to have part or all of your jawbone removed, which obviously has a pretty serious impact on your way of life. But he said it was only about a 1% chance that that would happen, so I thought, I, that's a risk I can I can take. It's pretty small compared to the 10% chance or 15% chance I have of dying in the next five years right now. So I can accept it. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later, after I had made my decision, that I went to see the oncology dentist who explained to me that actually it's a risk that goes on for the rest of your life. And anytime you have teeth extracted, there's a risk that it can happen. And so I would have to have fastidious dental hygiene and do everything I could to avoid losing teeth because it would be a fairly serious procedure to even just to have a tooth removed. It kind of put it in a whole different context for me because I thought, you know, am I going to be afraid of doing sports where I might lose a tooth? Like I love bike riding. There's some risk of getting a tooth knocked out if you do that. So it was just an example for me of how the information that you can gather in that period of time is pretty incomplete. Well, do you think you had enough information at the time? In hindsight, I had the information that I needed. I wouldn't have made any different decision if I had known everything that I knew now. I think the risks and the side effects were a reasonable trade-off for a cure, which was what I put as my highest priority. So far, it seems like I've achieved that. You're in ED now? I am, almost two years. Congratulations, Dr. Levi. Thank you. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's a wonderful feeling. And I don't even worry about recurrence anymore. I, I don't believe it's going to happen. That's a healthy state of mind, isn't it? I, yeah. Well, thankfully for all of us, you're here and you're doing the amazing work you're doing. Thank you so much for the passion you have 
behind analyzing data, helping other researchers get together, and helping other researchers get it together, and help their research to be more effective. And I can see in you that this personal experience with cancer has really touched you, and the fact that you're coming back and giving back in that capacity too, it's wonderful, Doctor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce. Well, my dear listeners, that is where we're going to wrap up part two of our interview with Professor Levi Waldron. I hope you enjoyed both parts of this interview. The comments we got from listeners were really great. They said, you know, we normally enjoy hearing from the cancer advocates and especially from the subject matter experts you bring on where they give me a deeper understanding of the stuff I'm experiencing right now. But I really enjoyed getting an understanding of the back end of what's really driving potential things that could help me. And that is important because this foundational understanding about statistics is going to help us when in the future we talk about how to discern better about what research results we hear in the media or from people that are casually talking about them, which ones of those might be viable or not necessarily well vetted. So this is good information for us. And Dr. Levi is a great guy too. As I said, you will hear Dr. Levi again when we produce those other podcast episodes on how to share your story on digital media or how you can share your own personal medical data. So people like Dr. Levi and his colleagues can take it and even more refine the data research they're doing and help clinicians investigate new treatments and possibly new cures for all of us. So thank you, Dr. Levi, for coming on the show. We look forward to seeing you again someday soon. And for all of you, I want to remind you that if you like our show, please follow us on your podcast app on your phone or on the web. If you listen to us on our website at www.ourcancerjourney.com, that's O-U-R-cancerjourney.com, we're very grateful. Remember that while you're there, to go to the contact page, drop your email in there so we can stay in touch with you and let you know when new episodes are going to publish. We have some exciting announcements coming up very, very, very soon. We need your help, we need your feedback, and we'd love to hear from you. My friends, I can't thank you all enough for listening to this show, for sending us all the encouragement you have, and for letting us know that this is something that really means something to you. We knew we were doing something different, but we truly believe that cancer does not have to consume our lives 24-7. We can become more empowered. We can do things to improve the quality of our lives for however long that might be. Because this is our cancer journey. This episode of the Our Cancer Journey podcast is sponsored and produced by Fairlead Media. All rights reserved.